Hello, Lion Click Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Lion Click Thoughts Podcast. And in this episode, I interview Chef Joe Sasto. We talk a lot about uh, pasta and his love for pasta and his time coming up in kitchens, his experiences on Top Chef, and even more pasta. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation because it just shows how someone who can be so dedicated to one type of cooking can be so successful. Uh, He's someone who is pushing boundaries when it comes to, you know, flour, water, and eggs. And I was really impressed with our conversation. I'm really impressed with his work, and I'm very honored to have had him on the show. He's someone who's very passionate about what he does. And not only pasta, but the entirety of cooking in the the almost like spiritual fact that you're connecting with people and feeding people and you know just making making experiences for people so i was very excited to talk to him and i thought our conversation went really well and i just want to say thank you chef for being on the podcast i'm so excited for y'all to hear this and if you love pasta you're sure to love this one thank you so much and let's go Anyway, thank you so much for being on. Um, it's a pleasure. If you just want to introduce yourself to the audience that'll be listening. Yeah, of course. Hey, uh, I'm Joe Sasso. I'm a chef uh, here based in Los Angeles right now and uh, originally from San Francisco. Awesome. And uh, where do you work? Uh, at the moment, I'm not working anywhere. I'm uh, okay. kind of a free agent, I guess you could say. been doing awesome. uh, pop-ups, events. Uh, all in the process of, you know, eventually wanting to open my own space. Really? And what would that look like? Uh, the space? It'd definitely be pasta-based. Uh, I have a couple different concepts going on, but, you know, at the moment, it's like uh, work 24-7, I guess. Okay. I'm, I'm always on. <laughs> nice. And uh, wh- how, like, why do you enjoy doing pop-ups? Um, uh, I think they're cool. You know, it's, it's a whole different um, kind of approach to cooking. Uh, you know, it kind of gives me flexibility in my schedule. It gives me the opportunity to travel and see other cities and other places that I normally wouldn't get to see. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it kind of is uh, it's a nice change from being in a restaurant all of the time uh, to kind of have a little more quality of life. Uh, I don't know if it's, you know, it's definitely not for everybody. Uh, it's not something that's easily to break into. Uh, I definitely wouldn't recommend it in lieu of being in a restaurant. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't want to paint the wrong picture here that like, oh, yeah, forget working in the kitchen. Just go do your own pop-up. Yeah, <laughs> it's no. not as easy as that. Yeah, definitely not. Um, I mean, the only experience I had is, uh, like I said, back in Buffalo, we did a dinner uh, one night. And then I got to go with my chef to the James Beard house one night. And that in itself was very difficult. So I can only yeah. imagine, you know, doing that. Yes, over and over, I've so. heard a lot about the James Beard House, and uh, it's a um, challenging kitchen to work in, I suppose, is what is the best way to put it. Yeah, yeah, it's very uh, small. Yeah, that's what I hear. <laughs> but but um, then that gives you a good per- perspective. That's what it's like doing a pop-up a lot of times. It's not as glamorous as uh, social media may always make it look. No, no, definitely. But I saw you went to Chicago uh, to Spiaggia. I actually got the stage there this past winter, and they have a beautiful kitchen. They have an amazing kitchen. They just got a brand new pasta table and uh, set up and kind of like whole workstation that overlooks Michigan Avenue and Lake Michigan. It's pretty fucking awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was when I went there, um, they, they wouldn't remember me probably, but it was really a, a great time, a great experience. And it was very cool. Like the food they were doing and the, 
the whole setup. So what were you like? What were you up to there? Obviously a pop up, but like, what was the dinner about? Uh, so you know, it's kind of one of those things where you always like cooking with your friends, and yeah, at that point, like Joe and Carrie are like family to me. So like when we had the Carrie and I were cooking together at her restaurant in Colorado, and uh, Joe reached out and was like, "Why, why aren't we cooking in my restaurant here in Chicago?" So kind of one thing led to another, and they were setting up a new pasta table. So that dinner was actually the first uh, set pasta that was made on that new table. It was kind of like a christening. Uh, really? if you will of the of the new pasta table and kind of rolled it all out there we made it the whole uh dinner was based around i think four or five courses of uh each of us doing a pasta nice and what were some of the pastas you did uh i did a beet dough it was like freshly milled rye flour some caraway seed in the dough and beet so it had like this really awesome uh dark purple hue okay. to it uh and then i did like a play on it was march so I think in March and Chicago, St. Patrick's Day, corned beef. So corned beef filling, fontina cheese, set on like this nice bed of buttered cabbage, tons of chives for like nice bursts of like allium, and then uh, made like a beet juice reduction and seasoned it up with that, um, the illegal mustard oil. I don't know if okay. you've seen that stuff, like that comes I, in the I little jars. No. Yeah, it's... Uh, Technically, you're not supposed to have it here in the States, but I know a couple of guys that like to smuggle stuff back from Italy for me. So it always <laughs> works out nicely when I get to pull out pull that out of my bag of tricks. Nice. It's awesome to hear. And um, I, I guess I, was fo- I obviously follow you and on Instagram. It seemed like you guys had, after that, you guys had like a, a dinner party or something. And that looked even cooler to be at. I'm not sure. Yeah, that was, uh, that was actually before. So Joe, before, okay. Joe Flam had just gotten a... Uh, just got his, a new house, moved in with the baby, his son, his wife. And so uh, we all had kind of like a family Sunday supper over at his place. And we made pasta and grilled some steaks and had some uh, really good wine and really just kind of got to spend time with family. It was nice. That's awesome. Yeah, I was I was watching it uh, through Instagram. I was like, damn, this like, it just looks like a lot of fun. <laughs> so, but yeah, um, so you... So I guess I just want to get into where you started with your career and whatnot. Um, so how did you, like, how was food for you growing up, I guess? Uh, food was like a huge part of my life growing up. And I think that's kind of like helped shape to where it's gotten me today. Um, a lot of that, most of that, I guess, due to my mom and kind of how she used food to bring the family together. Um, you know, okay. it was kind of, it was the, the image of a big Italian family. Granted, we didn't have a big Italian family, like... I know other people that actually have big families with like 40 cousins and 62 nephews and three different aunts. And it was, uh, it was only a small group of us, my two sisters, my two brothers, my parents. Um, but you know, food was always that thing that brought us together. Um, my mom was always like, whether she cooked it or, you know, something she picked up and finished at home, uh, was always that thing that kind of brought us together around the dinner table. So, like, it was at an early age, I, like, really saw and found out, like, how much power food can have. Mm. Okay. Is there, like, a certain memory that kind of sticks with you till today? A food memory or a certain food you ate? Uh, yeah, I think one of the biggest things my mom always made was, like, whenever me and my brothers would have friends spend the night on the weekends, uh, growing up, it was always, like, crepes for breakfast Saturday or Sunday morning. Like, she'd be up make crepes. My mom was French. So that was like one thing she like pulled out of like her background. And so it was always like crepes and then all like a buffet of toppings, fruits, jams, 
almond butters, sugar, lemons, like Nutella, all the like, whatever kind of like goodies we had around. And it was like, that was the thing, like Saturday morning, crepes at the Sasso house. Really? That's awesome. Um, and then, so I guess, how did you start getting into cooking? Uh, so it was always with her. Um, usually cooking at her side, helping out with dinner or various things. I mean, I think food was something I fell in love with at an early age, um, just through kind of Food Network. I think at the time back when Food Network actually had like shows on how to cook and not like how to cook with your arm tied behind your back on a treadmill with a knife made for a child or something like that. (laughs) Um, But, you know, so it was like I wasn't into sports. I didn't really watch a lot of cartoons. It was like watching cooking shows on repeat. And so, like, that was, like, you know, I fell in love with that and then, like, flipping through some of my mom's cookbooks and really just being with her in the kitchen um, was, like, inspiring and got me cooking uh, very early on and then just kind of evolved and grew from there. What was your uh, first restaurant job? Uh, So, I ended up – I wanted to go to culinary school. Um, At the time, being a chef wasn't really a – I guess you could say wasn't viewed as a legitimate career path. And so my mom was like, don't go to culinary school, you know, just in case you don't love this as much as you think you love this, go get like a a bachelor's degree and go to college. And like, so you have something to fall back on. And I was like, you know, I kicked and screamed and didn't want to do it, but really, really glad that she kind of pushed me in that direction. Um, I went to UC Davis and that kind of like that whole background, I got my degree in communications and being out in a city like Davis uh, is in Northern California, if you don't know much about Mm -hmm. it. Uh, It's a very liberal town, um, small college town, but the college was about 40,000 kids. And that's pretty much all that's in the town. And then like some older locals and professors. And so it's a very unique environment, but it really shaped and opened my mind, um, you know, culturally to a whole different side of life and people and um, you know, that, that helped shape a lot of things. And from there I was able to, I couldn't get a job in San Francisco. I was cooking on campus there, but it wasn't like, you know, a restaurant restaurant. It was like the on-campus eatery, um, mm. which is great. And we made everything from scratch and, but you know, it was not enough to get you a job in like a, a legitimate restaurant in San Francisco. Uh, okay. so from there, uh, through a friend of a friend, got a job up in, uh, Ukiah, even further North. Uh, almost like right there in the Emerald Triangle. Okay. Um, and so helped a friend open a restaurant there, and that was like my first real restaurant job. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I was looking up on like your. I think it was on website. It was a uh, the Top Chef bio that right like after school you helped open a restaurant. What was that like when you were so young in your career? Were you nervous? Were you excited? Like, what were the feelings of like doing that? Uh, I would say all all of those emotions, definitely nervous that like sick to your stomach, like, oh my God, how do I line cook? How do I do this? I uh, like had like a notebook. I was like writing everything down, trying to absorb as many things as I could. Like, and at the time, you know, I didn't realize kind of, I guess, the do's and don'ts of a kitchen. This was my first like environment. So I was just kind of like absorbing it all in and like looking back on it that first year, it was a lot of learning, I guess, not the things not to do in a restaurant, okay. in a sense. Um, you know, I kind of got taken under the wing of a much, much older guy uh, who had cooked for I don't even know how long. And he kind of like saw all the potential in me 
and was like, yo, you got to get out of here. You got to get to San Francisco. Like this place isn't for you. It's not good. Nothing good is going to come of this. Uh, just go to San Francisco and, you know, put me on your resume for like, say you've been working in kitchens for a while. And if anyone calls me, I'll vouch for you. Okay. And so, you know, kind of took that leap of faith and was able to land a job in uh, like a French bistro kind of place in San Francisco. Okay. And uh, I don't know if anybody ever called him, like checked references. You know, as a chef, I rarely even do that when I'm hiring. I normally just talk to the guy and you could get a good feel for people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it really depends on the type of job. I think a lot of those, like a lot more corporate hotel positions will actually like check references versus like, if you can cook and you're there and you're a body that cares and wants to like, you know, do a good job, you got the job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, was the, And then I read you worked at Quince for some time. Uh, how did you get to Quince? Because that's it's like a big jump from, you know, a restaurant up north in California to, you know, going to Quince. How did you kind of get into that role? So I was uh, I was a sous chef at, at Orange 74 in San Francisco. Um, and I was there for maybe like two years or so. And it was not... I slowly learned about like what the Michelin guide was and was like opening my mind to like cooking and like what the potential of food was and different levels of finer dining. And I didn't, uh, you know, have a good perspective on things. I took a trip. I took like, uh, I don't know, maybe eight weeks off with my brothers. We all went backpacking through Europe, kind of did that whole Euro trip um, to kind of like reset and then came back to San Francisco and at that point, I had connections in the city. I made friends. I, like, knew people in the industry. And I started, like, assing around and staging around. And I knew what staging was then at that point and kind of trying to I, – I knew I wanted to go from doing 300 covers a night to, like, 70 covers a night to really, mm-hmm. like, see what tweezer food was and see what that next level of fine dining was. So kind of, like, try to different places. And, you know, Quince has a reputation – in San Francisco is like one of the most grueling kitchens to work in incredibly demanding, uh, incredibly high stress. And a lot of people told me not to go work there that I would really? it, that it was just ridiculously hard that they almost like, you know, cooks, they just went through cooks like sponges at one point, I think is what one person said to me. Wow. And so it was like, all right, well, I actually really want to try that. I've never been in an environment like that. Uh, that sounds really hard and really cool. So I uh, staged there. They actually didn't have a position for me at night, uh, but they really kind of wanted me in there. So I did an AM kind of like prep position, uh, butchering, learning butchering, learning pasta fillings, braises, kind of like a lot of those like bake re- back, backbones of rustic Italian cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, it was one of those days uh, where I was getting ready to clean up, shake out, uh, clock out with everybody and one of the the meat cooks the meat entremet did something i don't even know what he did still to this day but um got like picked up by his apron and pretty much thrown out the back door and then the chef turned around and handed me his apron and said you're cooking tonight <laughs> and it was kind of that like wanted to throw up and so excited at the same time wow that's awesome it, it must have been crazy just like being handed the apron just be like go to work 
after it was. So like, you know, I worked the, I worked the station that night with the sous chef. Um, he really, you know, cooked, but I was kind of like standing there next to him trying not to get in the way, but watching this like incredible dance that all of the cooks and chefs did together, almost like a ballet of anticipating each other's moves and like passing up the sizzle trays and the sauces and tasting and moving things on and off the French top and like fanning the fire grill and all these little like touches and nuances and finishing things with flowers. And I was like in a trance, almost like this is awesome. Like, this is what I want to do. I want to learn how to do that. I want to be like them. I want to be able to do that uh, dance. And so, you know, from like there, I dove, dove deep into it. And I was, it was all consuming uh, for the next three years, but in the best way possible, looking back on it. Hmm. And at some point you became uh, head of their pasta program. Right. So like at the time, I didn't really even realize the reputation that Quince had and Michael Tusk had for pasta in the city and in the country. I just wanted to do tweezer food. I was mm-hmm. like happy to be working the meat station and everyone else in the kitchen wanted to get over to the pasta station. So maybe it was that thing that I was one of the ones that didn't show interest in it, that Tusk kind of like chose me one day to go over there and work with him on it. That kind of landed me in that same position where they needed someone over there. I happened to be there. I wasn't one of the people like pestering, like, hey, when can I go work pasta? Hey, when can I learn pasta? Hey, can I learn pasta? I've been working here. I want to learn pasta. And I think like, you know, I know a lot of, restaurants now that specialize in pasta or specialize in a particular thing where you need to work a minimum of a certain amount of time there before you're even considered for learning that skill Mm -hmm. um, or that craft so I kind of another thing that just fell into place that I didn't even anticipate or had known that that would like become my passion um kind of started working as a cook on the pasta station and one thing you know slowly over time over months once I started learning how to do it, it was, you know, you were responsible for having all of your own mise en place. And we had some pasta prep guys, but there was a lot of things that the pastas on the menu. There was like four different pastas, I think, on three or four different tasting menus. So there are a lot of different things for the prep guys to do. If they didn't get it done for you, you still needed it for service. It wasn't like, oh, well, the prep guys didn't do it. I guess it's not on the menu tonight. <laughs> yeah. So you had to do it. So at that point, you know, inevitably I would either come in early and hang out with the pasta guys and learn how to make it. And I didn't speak very good Spanish. They didn't speak very good English, but pasta became like that language that we both connected on. Okay. So like, you know, touching the dough more, like more dry, more wet, more mojado, more seco, uh, and kind of just learning the way it was supposed to be felt, the way it looked when it was kneading, the way it looked when you were rolling it out. And just working with them and helping them make the pasta and something I just fell deep, deeply in love with. And once you go into that rabbit hole, it is never ending. You like almost become obsessed with like this degree of perfection, like a baker. Like you could be happy with it, but you're like, no, you know what? It could still be better. And you want to like next time you do it, find a better way to do it. And like that's kind of like how it became with the pasta. Wow. And why... Why do you think pasta has was starting to like you know obviously you love pasta now but like why pasta out of all the you know different things you could cook? 
I don't know. I mean, I think I think about that not necessarily just myself, but just like chefs in general. You know, like I think everybody has a different reason on how they land on whatever their their area of focus or their specialty or their passion or whatever word you want to use is for them, whether it be, you know, they love pizza or they love bread or they love Nouvelle cuisine or they love, you know, that rustic live fire cooking. There's just like Mm -hmm. a different attraction or a different reason that draws everyone almost like they're calling, you know, as a kid, we ate pasta three or four days a week and I hated it. I was like, God, spaghetti again, mom, like this sucks. I want tacos. (laughs) But now it's like, I'm more than happy to make pasta every day and I enjoy it. So it's funny how like quickly things shift or life changes. And it's not like something that was all necessarily maybe always my calling. But I think once I kind of fell into that, it's something very therapeutic. Like it's a ritual of kneading the dough and something people have been doing for thousands of years making dough. And it's like, I'm Italian. It almost like maybe connects me to my ancestors or something from the past and like bringing it to the future. There's like so much power and history with something like dough that is just like, you know, in enthralling. Yeah. I mean, I feel you. I, I honestly feel the exact same way. So I'm Italian and uh, Polish and growing up kind of the same similarities as you did, like with getting into food, like watching Food Network. And my grandfather was a cook in the Navy. And that's kind of where I started to get inspired to become a chef or a cook or whatever you want to call it. And uh, basically we were Italian, but my grandfather never like made homemade pasta. um, And my grandmother never made homemade pasta. My mom didn't. Uh, We'd always have sauce on Sundays, but like it never was like homemade. Uh, so I remember my first time actually making pasta in culinary school was like, it was like game changing for me. And, you know, I love making pasta, nothing, nothing crazy like you, obviously, but you know, on my days off when I get to just, you know, spend a couple of hours making pasta and just making really good fettuccine. Like that's really what I've been focusing on lately is making sure the dough comes out like a good color and it's not too dry and, you know, mm-hmm. when it cooks and, you know, just that one pasta shape or that one technique I've spent maybe a year just making, not like, you know, trying to like evolve it or anything, but just making and trying to get better at it. Right. Um, so, I mean, no. that, on my days off, I mean, it definitely is something therapeutic and it's definitely like, I, I, I relate to what you're saying. Like for me, I always felt like I missed out because I never had like the Italian grandmother who made the pasta per se. So that's always been like my goal was to make fresh pasta, you know, for the rest of my life. You know, I still eat boxed pasta but i always want to wanted to like have that skill so i definitely yeah it's one of those things that like carries with you mm-hmm. yeah and it means a lot because you like for me i always wondered like you know did my ancestors make this as well so i want to like for the future with a family or whatever i want to make fresh pasta so that it continues and we don't lose that like art or that appreciation of making it so but yeah, yeah it's a it's a cool thought to think about do you like do your research with like books or like how do you find all these shapes and fillings and flavor combinations and pretty much everything you do? Well, you know, it's changed a lot. When I was working at Quince, Tusk and I, or Chef Tusk would, and I would almost butt, butt heads often because even at that like young age of my career, I kind of wanted to do things differently. I'd pick a shape, like I'd work on dishes that I wanted to put on the menu or present to him. And I'd like choose a shape from the north of Italy, but put it with like a cheese from the south of Italy. And like, that's a huge no-no in his eyes. 
Really? You know, so, like, I would present him with this. He's like, oh, you fucking idiot. Can't do that. Like, go read a book. What do you know? Like, you don't know anything. Go learn something before you, like, try to do this again. Like, take a book off his shelf in his office and, like, give it to me to take home. And I'm like, all right, like, that sucks. I feel like shit. But, okay, maybe I could learn something from this. Um, and then I got home, like, opened the book, and it's, like, all in Italian. It's, like, not an English book. <laughs> so like almost like a double like jab you know and i'm like all right well i still want to make something come from this so like i looked up the shape found it in the book and did like google translate to like learn about the shape and where it came from and like how it evolved over time and like the traditions behind it uh and then used that came back in the next day and kind of did the same dish that i had done the day before and gave him but told him the story behind it. It was like okay. a cast and shelly with like foie gras streusel. I still remember it like perfectly. Um, and like traditionally like a peasant pasta filled with amaretti cookies uh, because they didn't have enough meat. So that's like what that shape like from Piedmont like comes from. Okay. So uh, we elevated it. Obviously it's not a peasant food in our minds because we're serving it a quince. So we use squab instead of like leftover meats. And then normally filled with amaretti cookies, I made, like, foie gras amaretti and, like, crumbled it on the outside as, like, decadence rather than needing to put that to bulk up the filling because we could have as much squab as we want. Mm -hmm. And then using some beets and lovage because both of those are found that time of year in Italy and kind of, like, tying it all together. And then I told him that story, and he was like, how did you know that? And I was like, oh, I read it in the book. And he, like, looked at me. And I was like, all right, this is good. We can put it on the menu. And that was like, I think the first dish that I had like gotten on, you know, a Michelin starred menu on doing making pasta. And I think up to that point, like it was really only Chef Tusk who would put pastas on the menu. The CDC and like the executive Sue would like do all the other dishes and come up with all the other dishes and they could put on what kind of what they wanted. But pasta was like something that only Tusk focused on and only he would put things on the menu i'm sure it's changed now over time but that was like a really big turning point for me for the restaurant for my career and kind of like so now when i'm looking at dishes and pasta and ideas and inspiration i think it's like super important and valuable that i learned the hard way or the long way all of the rules in italian cooking so that now i can go and break them okay that makes sense and I mean, obviously, with your time off now, are you are you researching? Are you looking at new shapes? Like, I just like there must be so many like different ways of doing pasta out there. Like, I just I'm trying to get at like, how do you decide to just nail one down? Like, do you just like what inspires you to make a new shape or go after a certain technique in Italian pasta dough making? I think a lot of it has to do with where where I'm going to be cooking it, especially like being on the road. You know, a lot of it the kitchen I'm cooking in, how many people I'm cooking it for. Am I cooking for it all at once? Am I cooking it a la carte a couple plates at a time? Um, what is the crowd like? Do they want something like modern and reinterpreted or are they like a meat and potatoes kind of crowd? And like, you kind of got to, you always got to cook for your audience as much as you're cooking for yourself. Like you need to put your, as a chef, well, you know, your, your pride aside and, be like, all right, no, like, I got to give people what they want. And then you kind of use that as a starting point. 
to be inspired by any number of ways. I mean, a lot of it is like my girlfriend, she like is like my biggest like muse and inspiration for things. You know, a lot of times we'll get really high and just like eat food or talk about food or look at food and then come up with like these crazy ideas. And I'll be like, no, you can't do that. She's like, no, no, no. What if you did this and this, and this, and I'm like, actually, maybe you could do that. <laughs> and then it kind of evolves from there. She'll start with something completely off the wall and then I'll like rein it back in to something that like you actually could create an addition. It kind of all comes together. <laughs> That's nice. Um, and why do you think pasta is like so loved by so many people? I mean, it's whether it's in fine dining or, you know, at a kitchen table for somewhere for someone like in some small town, like it's like, a big deal for a lot of people. Why do you think people love it so much? I think it, it has to do with nostalgia and memory. You know, food itself has like power and evokes memories and emotions. And pasta is like one of those unique foods that like, I don't care who you are, or where you come from or how you grew up, you've eaten pasta at least mm-hmm. once in your life. Like maybe not fresh, but you've had pasta, mac and cheese out of the blue box or whatever it is. Um, so when it's done really well, it kind of like brings you back to, a childhood like state of like happiness, but then you're having a really good version of it that you may have never had before. And it just like, is this huge kind of combination of emotions and happiness and joy. And I think, you know, there are a few other foods that do the same thing, but pasta is one of them. Okay. And what is, what is, what have been some, I guess, what have been some of your favorite shapes or flavor combinations that you've done recently? Uh, you know, the one I did in Spiaggia was a lot of fun with the corned beef and cabbage. I just did a pastrami tortellini okay. um, in like a, like a mustard brodo. It was almost like reminiscent of like a matzo ball soup and like a Reuben all in one, almost like an ode to a Jewish deli. That sounds good. Um, you know, the shapes always just kind of change with time there are ones i really enjoy making like tortellini i think i'll always love castanchelli i really like a lot just because there's something satisfying about like folding it over and making them and then like a lot of times the filling dictates the shape a lot of people don't realize like there are some fillings that cook better and hold better in certain shapes and then some shapes like that have less filling or more filling and sometimes you don't want a big bite of brown butter potato filling you want little tiny pockets of love versus like big fat raviolos that just have tons of ricotta which is like great <laughs> yeah yeah raviolo kind of changed my life because i love i love like egg yolks and i love pasta and i remember i was watching mind of a chef with uh gabriel hamilton and i ne- I'd never heard of it until like a couple years ago when she was making them in italy and i was like holy crap like that is like my perfect dish so They're pretty incredible yeah, I made it. it. It turned out, thank God. Uh, it was very hard. I broke like the first four, um, but yeah, that's definitely one of my favorite uh, pasta dishes is raviola. Yeah, it's a good. Um, one. It's a crowd pleaser. Yeah, one of the definitely. classics. Do you just serve one, or do you serve a couple? Or I just serve one. No, okay. then you just make like a nice big fatty, and then it's <laughs> like normally. I mean, I've seen people eat more than one, but it's not for the faint of heart. No, definitely not. Uh, I did have a question for you. Uh, looking at your Instagram uh, while researching, there's this one day it was posted on February 26th, uh, Blake, uh, blank canvas. And it's like a diamond, uh, I guess, design. 
like you would do like grow marks or whatnot. Um, but That's what the, uh, it was brown did, and uh, brown and yellow, I think. Yeah, yeah. How did you um? How did you get that design? I don't so know it's like did, something like, that like I don't remember how I got inspired from that. I'm pretty sure like Linda Nicholson in um in Seattle, Salty Seattle on Instagram. I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Does a bunch of colored does, and I remember like seeing her and following her like kind of when I was starting making pasta and like you know it's one of those really labor intensive things and it's really like you roll out one dough you make another dough I think that one was a cocoa dough I used and you cut it into strips much like you know tagliatelle or fettuccine uh you lay it on top each individual strip uh then rerun it through the machine one or two more times then you make your shape out of that um and that kind of like I think comes from that attention to detail of working in like those two and three Michelin star kitchens where it's like, if you could do something that is more aesthetically pleasing, that maybe doesn't necessarily add a difference to taste, but you always eat with your eyes first. Yeah. It kind of like ups that level of uh, technicality and makes it that much more special for the person that's enjoying it. Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, I saw that and I was like, damn, like, how, how did you get there? So, and then, there's another shape that I had a question about. Uh, he posted it on December 21st, and it's like a double-sided pasta with a brown butter potato on one side and prosciutto ricotta on the other. Yeah, so that's that's called a doppio, which means double in, uh, in Italian. So that's actually a pretty classic shape in different areas, um, and it's almost it, – it's harder to make than it looks because you have to, like, take into account to have enough dough on each side to be able to fold over and seal without too much dough being folded over. So it's not too thick. So it's okay. a little bit of trial and error, but it's like making a ravioli or an annulotti of any kind. And you kind of just form, put the double, the two different fillings down, fold it over and then seal it and cut it. But okay. it's really fun because then you could kind of combine two different fillings in one shape, whether it be two contrasting fillings or two complementing fillings, uh, which makes it really fun and interesting to eat. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that was cool. Um, and what do you look for when you, so obviously you make your pasta, you make, you know, you're cooking really well to perfection. What do you look for in like the finishing sauce or like how it's going to be eaten, like to complement the pasta? Um, you know, normally it's like one cohesive thought when I'm thinking about like the sauce and the filling and the pasta, because like to me, pasta and sauce are not two different things. Like pasta is, the noodle and the sauce when mm. you say pasta. So like, I think a lot of people misinterpret that and it's like, Oh, what sauce are you going to put with it? It's like, it's not really a, the sauce. You almost think of it like a marriage. You know, I think Mark Vetri said it very well where it's like, you have pasta or you have the noodle and sauce like Mr. And Mrs. Smith or Jane's Jane Doe and John Smith. There we go. That's mm-hmm. how I said it. The noodle and the sauce. And then when, Jane Doe and John Smith get married, it's Mr. and Mrs. Smith, one thing, the marriage or the pasta. So you're never okay. really kind of thinking them as two separate things. It's just one thing altogether. Does that make sense? Did I say that correctly? No, yeah, you said it perfectly. And that's kind of, I never thought of it that way. Um, yeah, well, I have to start looking at it like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, that totally makes sense. Uh, what are some, uh, I guess, what are some books you could recommend for someone like me who likes making pasta but isn't sure how to kind of get into it? Because obviously I could go online, but 
I'm more like the cookbook type person where it's more focused and, you know, so what are some books you could recommend if you have any? I really love Mark Betry's books, uh, Mastering Pizza and Mastering Pasta. I think like the, he does a really great job of explaining the whys of cooking, um, which to me is always the most important as a cook every day is always asking why. I always tell my cooks and my chefs, like, ask why. Be curious, like, why we stack the pans this way and not another way. Why do we use a cast iron pan for this and a saute pan for this? Why do we salt the water for this and not salt the water for that? And, you know, whatever it is, just ask them why. And I think Vetri does a really good job of explaining a lot of those whys when Mm -hmm. it comes to, like, the mysteries of dough whether that be like pasta dough, bread dough, pizza dough, uh, whatever it is, and kind of like that relationship between protein and gluten and water, hydration and fat and eggs. And, you know, once you understand the why of things, then you can really start creating because then you could look at your final product and be like, oh, this is way too crumbly or, oh, this is way too chewy. And you know why it's chewy or why it's crumbly. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I actually just added it to my Amazon cart, so I'll be getting that. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm a big book nerd. Uh, I love reading uh, cookbooks and books in general, so thank They're you. Great. Um, awesome. So I, we've been talking about pasta for a while. I kind of wanted to shift over to your time on Top Chef and uh, talk about that experience. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was, it was pretty incredible. It's funny to think I almost didn't do it, uh, really? especially like where it's gotten me now. I mean, cause it wasn't something I sought out um, at all. It was, uh, I'd never really seen the show. I like knew of it and kind of just thought of it as like uh, another one of those shows on Bravo that people just had drama living together in a house. And I couldn't have been more wrong. Really? Absolutely. And so like, I think I was working at Lazy Bear at the time and a couple of casting producers had come in and to open kitchen and kind of a very interactive concept if you're not familiar with it. And after they had dined there, they were very adamant that I get on the phone with them and do some Skype interviews. And I'd kind of turn them down about three or four times uh, before my girlfriend, the same one, uh, Bella was like, hey, you know, maybe you should actually do this. Like, this could be really good for you, for us, for your career. And uh, one thing led to another. And there I am in Colorado. Okay. And so I, I personally have, I haven't seen your season. I haven't really watch Top Chef as much as I probably should. Um, I'm huge into like cooking media for some reason. I don't watch a lot of cooking shows per se and I know Top Chef is different. So what was it like through like your time there? I mean, you don't have to tell me everything, but like what did you learn, the people you met? Uh, what was it like? Well, you definitely have this like bond of family like brotherhood and sisterhood with all the other chefs that go through this crazy, crazy competition with Uh, But one of the things I think that they don't really maybe touch on as much as they do is it really is kind of like a culinary boot camp for chefs. You know, they drill into you like, what is your food? What is your voice? What's important to you on a plate? And really, they like draw that out of you over the course of, you know, eight weeks as to if you only have two hours to do something or you only have 30 minutes to do something what is really important to you as a chef? How do you best want to represent yourself in one bite? And then it really starts to like force you to find out what your food is, what matters to you, like where, where your loyalties in cooking and ingredients really lie. Okay. Awesome. And uh, how long was it for? Like how long did you do top chef for? 
It was eight weeks. Eight weeks. Okay. Awesome. And uh, what did you, I guess, learn the most from it? Uh, I th- I think kind of like that same thing. Just like what what mattered to me. Mattered to you. Awesome. And uh, so now you're like you're kind of like a free agent. You're looking maybe to open your own place. What uh, like, what is the place? I mean, we talked about in the beginning like a little bit. Like menu wise, you said it would be more centric on pasta. Uh, are there any like more in depth details like of what you want out of like a pasta? Like, is it a pasta bar? Or is it a fine dining restaurant focused on pasta alone? Like, what do you? I guess what are you thinking? You know, I really, I really like the way fine dining restaurants approach food, but I want to. I really like to remove those barriers of like pretentiousness and like comfortability, comfortableness, comfort, comfortability that uh, yeah. that like guest guest experience. You know, I want it want it to be a place where people feel like they could come any night of the week, uh, but also be very special uh, for when you're there. Uh, that you you know, it's not something that you can just have any time necessarily but you know it it's almost exclusive in the sense that think kind of almost like a pop-up like a dinner party okay uh, but still kind of like a daytime component to it as well okay yeah that would definitely be cool um i actually got to live in california uh this past summer for 12 weeks it was my last semester in school um so i mean i definitely loved california because of the produce and almost like the feel that like you could you know anything was possible out there uh what about california i guess inspires you to cook uh the people and the ingredients i think like california we have access to some of if not the best ingredients in the world um Mm -hmm. for all year long i mean our our view of cooking and seasons is definitely skewed out here um but looking past (laughs) that what we have access to the small artisans, the small farmers, the cheese makers, the grain growers, the, no matter what it is, there's someone very special with a very special story doing it for the right reasons, creating incredible products that I feel obligated to be almost their like intermediary to then tell their story and showcase what they do to other people. Cause it's often forgot that like, someone that grows asparagus they've been growing asparagus on the same piece of land for five generations and that's all they do and that's all they grow and they've been doing that more longer than i've been cooking and Mm -hmm. so you know that's my responsibility to represent them not just myself and i think that is like a a huge inspiration Hmm. yeah yeah i definitely feel that when i was out in california we um so basically my program, we would visit all these farmers and then cook a meal based on food they donated and where we visited. Uh, there was this one one farmer who stood out to me the most. I'm actually going to have him on the podcast in a couple of weeks. His name is Douglas Hayes. And, uh, where was that at? Uh, this was in Napa, Calif- uh, Napa Valley, California, in St. Helena uh, area. And um, basically he raises these Buckeye chickens. Uh, there's this heritage breed chicken that he kind of saved. And... Um, the one day we got to go uh, to his sanctuary, he calls it, for the animals. And we actually, you know, took the lives of the chickens, uh, you know, did everything. Um, took off the feathers and, you know, got them ready for our dinner. And it was really one of the most personal times of my life, like experience-wise, to go through that with him. But he, his view on the world was insane. And it was crazy to think it was all at this, like, this chicken farm, basically. 
So he was definitely one of the many farmers I met in California that really just blew me away with the community out there and how even though they were so far apart at sometimes they all seemed to have like the same love and interest in feeding people. So that's why that's why I think I really liked California a lot. Yeah, it's a really special place. <laughs> yeah. So uh cool. I mean I just have a few like I guess quick questions. Um I was on your website and you have a tattoo on your arm and I was wondering what it said. It says Fato Amano, which means made by hand in Italian. And I got that uh, while, while I was working at Quince because a lot of things that we did were only done by hand, especially with pasta. And so it kind of is an ode to, to doing things the hard way because it may be the right way, even though it's the harder way. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you make something by hand, you're putting love into it. Food is all made by hand. I was made by hand. Um, and it kind of like has multiple meanings on multiple levels. Oh, wow. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Uh, a big hashtag I see you put up is a hashtag eat pasta, make love. Uh, why is that a message that you want to keep spreading? Uh, I think it's just something fun and interesting. Kind of one of those things, like no matter what it is, like it could be used for anything you're passionate about, you know, eat sushi, make love. It's kind mm-hmm. of one of those multi, multi-level things. And it's just kind of fun and quirky. <laughs> nice. Uh, what are, who are some chefs I guess you're interested in right now or chefs you look up to? Oh, man. You know, I I love watching what all of my colleagues are doing. You know, okay. it's kind of like I, I think I look at different people for different sources of inspiration. Like, you know, there's some of the like Tyler Anderson, who like I did the show with. I always look to him for like business advice. Cause he's just like building his own empire right now out on the East coast, just doing an incredible job. You know, Joe flam is like slowly moving towards being able to open his own restaurant within mm. the next couple of years. And so like, I look to him for like inspiration on that. And then there are like other chefs who like, I've never even met like in Toronto, like Rob Gentile, who's like doing like incredible modern classic Italian food. Okay. That's just like, you know, so fun and interesting to see what he's doing. And then you look up north at chefs that I used to work with in San Francisco and kind of like following along with their stories and their paths and seeing what they're doing. I think there's like a whole range of people. And now that like social media is like removed the boundaries of distance. It's like you could see what anyone is doing at any time that it is really just kind of made this world much smaller place. Yeah, I agree. Um, and going on uh, social media, why why do you think it's important to have a brand? I mean, you're definitely a chef who has a brand, obviously, like, you know, Chef Joe Sasto. And uh, how? Like, why do you think cooks should be looking at that when they're coming up in the next couple of years? Because I know a lot of cooks who aren't really on social media, and that's okay if they're not, but I really feel that's important to have some presence out there for people to see what you're doing or at least connect to people. Yeah, I mean, I really think it depends what your end goals are. You know, like I I really enjoy inspiring and connecting with people. And that's kind of like why I put myself out there is to anytime I could hear that, like I've inspired someone to do something or teach someone how to do something. It's like a chef. That's why I feel like we do this is not necessarily just to like further ourselves, but to like pass on knowledge. Like someone took the time to teach us something. So it's important that then we take the time to pass that on to the next generation of cooks 
And maybe that's not through social media, but at right now it's like, that's a huge tool to bring people and connect people together. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, what is uh, one piece of advice you could give to a young cook listening right now? Because I, you, when I told some of my followers that we would be doing an interview, they were like pretty stoked. Um, so what is uh, one piece of advice you could give to some listeners who are like, you know, my age, 28, 21, and they want to kind of break through in the industry? Uh, I say keep your head down and keep going. Like, don't get discouraged. Don't look at what other people are doing and feel like you're falling behind. Like, keep at your own pace, stay focused and be humble. You know, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people think they're ready for positions they're not ready for, or people want to move up so quickly or kind of be that chef figure without really putting in the time to be the best chef that they could be. So I think it's really about taking your time, keeping your head down, always striving to do better every single day better than the day before whether that be using one less towel than you did the day before or dicing onions a little more perfect than you did the day before i think that can take you incredibly far okay thank you for sharing that Um, definitely a lot of people will do good from hearing that and myself you know thank you that means a lot and um, my last question, this is something I ask all the guests on the podcast who come on. Uh, so basically, you know, me starting Line Cook Thoughts, I wanted to have like a name or a hashtag that everyone could go under. So I call us the Line Cook Nation. And I was wondering what that meant to, for you to be a part of a community where cooks and chefs and food industry people are trying to connect and grow and relate with each other uh, in today's age. You know, I think we're all in this together. I think no matter how hot, ha- far or high you grow in your career we're all still just line cooks awesome thank you thank you for sharing that all right chef well you know it's been an honor uh it's been a blast talking to you i definitely feel the urge to go make pasta right now (laughs) nice uh, but thank you so much for being on it means a lot especially you know starting out and having someone like you come on the show it it definitely means a lot yeah it's great thanks for taking the time to talk it's always nice to uh connect with another Another one in this crazy industry. Oh, yeah. Definitely. All right. Thank you so much, Chef. All right. Have a good one. Thanks. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And there you have it, the interview with Joe Sasto. Be sure to check out winecookthoughts.com, the official Wine Cook Thoughts merch, and we'll see you in the next episode.